I'm Grace from the Cozy Robot Show. I do social media and sometimes I play on my guitar. And tonight I'm playing a little bit on my guitar, but we didn't lie to you. It's not just me on my guitar tonight. It's Mike and Victory too. 32 people. Wow. Don't go away yet. Our countdown didn't work. So it's just me. <laughs> and, and me. <laughs> and Mike. Yay. <laughs> We, uh, welcome to the Cozy Robot Show. This week, without a countdown and without a title uh, song, because our streaming platform does a great job bringing our faces and voices to you in real time. Doesn't always like to play media files. So we had a little scramble. And Grace, thank you for an impromptu performance. Oh, my gosh. Anytime. Uh, you, what Grace. a joy. What a joy. So change the format up a little bit. Hi, I'm Mike McCarg. This is Grace Vaughn. Hi. Social media manager extraordinaire, Victory Palmazano, the show's Hello. executive producer. Hi, everybody. We are here to uh, have a little thing called the Cozy Robot Show, a program that's all about empathetic skepticism, being in touch with our feelings and having critical thoughts about the world that let us know what is real and what's not without being assholes about it, which seems to be <laughs> a balance that people have difficulty with. And uh, so we're streaming live on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and Twitch. And then you can hear this uh, later on on Instagram TV as a replay, also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, all that kind of good stuff. And lately, we've been taking a lot of live questions on the show. So as you're watching along, wherever you are watching along, the team behind the show can see your comments. So if you have a question for us that you'd like us to answer during the show, you can drop that as a comment at any time, and we'll, we will be able to see that. And I uh, just want to let you know that was going on. So, uh, and usually right now I would introduce Grace and Victory, but they're already here. We're just getting more and more efficient every week. So, um, yeah, not like I know what's going on. What's up? Uh, this week's show is just a day late, but this is our love and relationships episode, everybody. Ooh. Yeah. Love and relationships. <laughs> Marvin Gaye plays from everywhere and nowhere. Bop. Um, yeah, I mean, and last I'm, week tonight came back last night, so that was that was ooh, my Valentine's prize. That is a great Valentine's prize. <laughs> that and your Japanese multi course meal. That's true. We got a nine course dinner at the house, so that was uh, nice. trying to make pandemic time special. Oh, that's really nice. But I went that's out awesome. in public, haven't done that in a while. Uh, yeah. to go pick up the food curbside and just, I will admit y'all, I had some judgy, judgy thoughts about members of the public and their COVID safety protocols. Now that outdoor dining is reopening in Los Angeles County, I was like, what are you people doing? Yeah. Yeah. There's so many signs clearly labeled and so many instructions not followed everywhere I went. So Ooh, yeah. they tried to make him go inside. But I wouldn't. Yeah. Because it said two people only are allowed inside once to pick up an order you've already called about. And I was like, okay, perfect. And when I walk up, the restaurant was just full of human bodies crowded in proximity. <gasps> no. And I was like, I'm not going in there. And people would come up and be like, is this the line? And then I would just look at them, not know what to do. And they would just walk in with everybody else. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to stand here forever. And a server uh, passed by and she said, what, what's going on? I was like, I'm just here for a pickup order. She said, you can get it inside. And I said, I'm not going in there with all those people. Yeah, good. So she asked my name and then brought me my order. And uh, he took a stand and it worked. 
<laughs> Less a stand uh, and more like an anxiety fueled panic. But yeah, <laughs> same thing. <laughs> I haven't been inside in a long time. Well, I thought we would kick off this episode by telling awkward date stories. <laughs> if you guys would indulge me. Oh um, Mike, you have to go like, what? Actually, I, I think I know what you're going to tell, but I'm not sure because we briefly touched on it this morning. So you're going to go way back 20 years ago or you're going to go uh, just to last night. Yeah, I, I, I like to pretend 20 years ago never happened. Anything it didn't. pre-Jenny, what oh. I call a learning experience. <laughs> so I'll go with my most awkward Jenny date story, uh, which was, was it yesterday, Valentine? It was yesterday, yeah. Okay, that seems like a long time ago. It was yesterday, it was last night. Mm-hmm. And I, as we just mentioned, went and got a, uh, a nine-course dinner from a Japanese restaurant, a Japanese barbecue for my family. And we sat down. We put out the wedding china. You uh, failed to mention that sweet part. That's really sweet. We put really out the wedding sweet. china. That was Jenny's idea. And, you know, it's us and Madison and Macy and Jenny, family, you know, husband, wife, two daughters, whole thing. And it was really fun. And then we, as we were talking, um, you know, my, my children are young and culturally current. And so they will use a vocabulary that Jenny and I have limited familiarity with. Me more than Jenny because I spend so much time online. But they were talking about how Jenny and I simp for each other. S-I-M-P. <laughs> Listen to Grace and her knowing laugh and look at my face. No clue what you're going to have to educate me. Yeah, Grace gets it. Grace is like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, what? Now, they knew the term. They knew how to use it accurately. However, they did not know the etymology of the term, which I did. So they use it, but I understood where it came from in internet culture and to what purpose. So I have sort of an anthropological lens on internet culture. Simping is basically... uh, Falling hard for someone, and it doesn't necessarily always imply in a symmetrical way. So if you're simping for someone, you kind of pine for them and will do things for them. Um, it, it comes from uh, streaming, like game streaming on Twitch okay. and other platforms. And men will simp for women streamers. That's kind of the origin of the term. And then it expanded more broadly online to be a term that Gen Z just uses relationally. And uh, so Macy was meaning it was very sweet, and Madison as well, that Jenny and I simp for each other, a mutualistic simping, if you will. Very deep and profound idea. Um, And then Macy was like, you two are such goals because you both fell in love and dated and, and got married. It was the first person you ever dated. Okay, well. (laughs) <laughs> that is 50% true. I am the first person that Jenny ever dated. The uh, inverse of that statement is not accurate. And But Macy just kept talking about it. And I was like giving her signals because I wanted it to go well. And Macy's like, what? And I was like, I was like, mom's not the first person I dated. And uh, Macy goes, oh, my God. Dad, were you a player? <laughs> and uh, and then oh. Jenny responded 
enthusiastically and affirmatively, but not positively, that in fact that I was. And uh, it was very, very awkward. And I tried <laughs> to get Macy off the subject of I've dated people other than Very mom. funny. It was Play not, a it's mic. Not a good, it's not a good look. Play not, a I'm mic. I'm a little sweaty right now. Like it's <laughs> a lot of learning experiences before I got it right. Uh, yeah. I Awkward love that. Valentine's Day date. Okay, Grace, I feel like yours is going to be so good. So I'm going to go next. <laughs> okay, because yeah. you, were, you were like, no oh, pressure. I got a good one. It's true. So, I did set the expectation very high. Really although did. I think that I can, I really think that I'll, I've got quite the story. So go ahead, Victoria. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go. So that uh, way it's not <laughs> underwhelming when I go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, sure. So oh, that's funny. I have been um, married now for a couple of years. So I've been off the dating scene for a little while, but it's still pretty fresh in my memory because uh, I was single for many years and I went on 40 first dates before I actually met Daniel. Um, he was my 41st date. That's a whole other story. Um, but I went on so many first dates that I started keeping a list of like first name defining characteristic because they were all so bizarre. <laughs> Some of them were nice, but I would have to say, I just have to give that context just to give you the, like the world that I was operating in was just like one awkward date after the next, but this topped it. Uh, this was a setup through a friend. So very nice guy. But the minute we met, I was just like, zero chemistry. And like, mm -hmm. you just know, sometimes right. you just know, like, this is not going to work. But we met for like, I think it was like tacos or something. Um, and it was just one of those were like, so nice, but like no personality whatsoever. Just boring. That sounds so mean. And I don't mean to mean, but it was boring. And so <laughs> I was just, when I get nervous, I ask a lot of questions. So I was like, so tell me about what you do. And he was a lawyer, but that was all very boring. And he, I couldn't get anything out of him. And then he finally made this confession to me that he, his dream was to be a stand-up comedian. Okay. And that was like the worst dream he could possibly have because like he couldn't even have a conversation. But I, of course, was like, that's fantastic. And so I just kept asking him about it. And I was trying to be really affirming. And suddenly he burst into tears. And like, I don't have a problem with men crying at all. I, I welcome and embrace men crying, but you know, we'd known each other for like 20 minutes and oh my goodness. he just started crying and he was just like, think it was, it was actually really sweet. It was just mm. very awkward. Um, and so then I like spent the rest of the date, like comfort, it became like a therapy session. And so I just oh, wow. affirmed his dream and and that was kind of it. And then we just, we mm. said goodbye. And I think he messaged me on LinkedIn once after that. And that was, that was it. It was very awkward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't sweet. know. It's sweet, sweet. It is sweet. But I think at the time I didn't quite know what to do mm -hmm. with yes. that. We were, we were at the oh, Grove. I would have been we were at the Grove. Confused. We were like surrounded by people. We had truly, we had just, I mean, we were strangers. And so mm. it was anyways, it was just awkward. Yeah. I, um, I similarly had a very awkward experience though. This one was all my fault. Um, See, this, that's way better. It's a way better oh, story. Please. Truly. We saved the best for me. last. So I once I'll start with this. 
I once took two young men to the same dance on accident. This is how I did it. I was in two high school. Two young men. Two young men. <laughs> two sutas. Um, I have I, two young men on my dance card. <laughs> would you like my... I'm watching Bridgerton, so I love that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so I'll make it quick. But basically, my friends and I, we were not popular. And so we were not going to get asked to the dance. But we still wanted to go. So we decided we were going to go together as a group. And uh, that was really exciting and fun. And then the day before the dance, I was in the hallway in between the bell ringing. And um, this guy who had won prom king last year, he goes, Grace. And I'm like, yes, you know, like this is huge. And he's like, do you want to go to homecoming with me? And I said, I literally, my self-esteem was so low. I said, don't be mean. Cause I thought he was kidding. And he said, he said, um, he's like, I'm not kidding. Do you want to go with me? And I was like, uh, I, I suppose. And so he was like, okay. Like immediately I could see the cogs turning. Like I'm regretting asking this weird girl. So I was it's like, okay, okay, okay. So I said yes. And I was so excited to tell my friends. So I go that night. I, I didn't have a cell phone yet. So I could, it, everything could have been avoided had I had mm -hmm. a cell phone, mm -hmm. mom and dad, if you're listening. <laughs> but I, um, I went to my friend's house that night. All the girls were there. And I went up to my friend whose house it was. And I said, oh my gosh, I have a date for this evening. And she goes, that's terrible because I got you a date. Um, he's a homeschool boy who's never been to a homecoming dance and you're really nice. I thought that you could take him. So here I was, the boy comes in and because I was so awkward, everything could have been fixed if I had just said, Hey, I have another date, but I didn't. And he, so anyway, he put the corsage on my wrist. We went to the auditorium, the school auditorium and, uh, the other guy saw, and he had a corsage wait, wait, waiting wait. for me. Homeschool boy put corsage on your wrist? Yes. Or prom king put corsage on prom your wrist? Prom king tried, and then I had two corsages you on two, two wrists. And then he was, they, then they both were so upset, <laughs> and I avoided them the rest of the night. I'm so sorry. That was a long question. We have to get to qu other questions. No, I know that, that was really a long good. story. Carbon Heart <laughs> Kid said it's like an episode from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> <laughs> it was like an episode from Saved by the Hell. I'll tell you yeah. what. I was it was the worst thing that has ever. It was awful. The rest of the night I just avoided those boys. Um okay, so oh on my gosh, sorry. Can I just read one more comment? Yeah, please do. Please Jacob do. said Mike not knowing what to do with his face during that story made my <laughs> night. <laughs> Mike was like he felt for the boy, he felt for no, me. He had so much he was yeah, for the yeah. underdogs in all the stories. <laughs> yeah, like... you did. You really did. Um, speaking of, I have some some uh, some shared life experience with uh, unpopular nerdy boys. Oh, uh, we like to call ourselves extra cassages who cry in public. You know, no big... oh, there you go. <laughs> we love you, those who cry in public. We champion you. We champion you. Um... I also, by the way, never know what to do with my face. So I know. I can... It's not just during that sequence. That, you're watching my facial software turn on and off as I go into like, I sh like true listening, which for me looks like this. Right. And then, oh shit, I'm on camera. So I go like, 
Just constantly he just runs. The look of surprise got me real good. The more good. I listen, the less I look like I'm listening. Sure. And so what happens? Like I'll like start looking at Victor and be like, oh, <laughs> and then I see myself in the corner. I'm like, you look like you hate someone. <laughs> and then you start oh smiling, and we're like, this is sad. Why are you Autism <laughs> spectrum disorder. The so. best. <laughs> Oh my lordy lord! All right, um, let's get to some questions. Let's Grace. get to some questions. Okay, let's Mike. do it, Mike. Um, here's <laughs> the first you one. Do the show with me. It's so much better. It's just so much better. <laughs> um. Okay, Mike. How? Let's start with the silly one since we're in a silly mood. How would you go about marrying a pizza lawfully? <laughs> I mean, I'd love to. You all know me and pizza. Um, I feel like that question is like the validation of all the worst fears of conservative Christians who are like, if we allow same-sex marriage, it's a slippery slope until someone wants to marry their lawnmower. Or in this case, a pizza. Uh, one would have to somehow establish the personhood of a pizza. I think you're going to need a constitutional amendment or a pretty interesting bit of standing to get a SCOTUS case and an interpreter. I mean, if corporations are people, here's the easiest way I could think to do it legally, in all seriousness. Uh, we've already established through multiple SCOTUS precedents that uh, corporations are people and are protect have protected speech. Um, so step one, I think, is allowing someone to marry a corporation. Uh, and then your only trick there is to make the pizza the owner of a corporation, again, which will require its own legal precedent. But I do think, you know, uh, in the United States, uh, corporate legality is probably the quickest path. <laughs> as, I, as always, take a silly question seriously. Uh, but Citizens United, I'd start building on that precedent. If corporations have speech, corporations can be pizza and corporations can get married. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, the way I said perfect just now really makes it sound like I will later be marrying a Great. pizza. But um, I go who's file to say? An LLC, yeah. Hey, I'll be right back. <laughs> great, great. Good to know. Um, okay, Mike, is there such a thing as healthy flirting while in a relationship? Oh, my God. This is going to be the hardest show we've ever done. I don't know what flirting is. I've been told repeatedly through my entire life experience that I do not know when people are flirting with me. It's true. Um, I think this question does illustrate something really important, though. And that's like the expectations we bring to relationships that are unspoken. We've basically allowed religious traditions and media culture to create this set of standards, these scripts that are very heteronormative and centered on cisgender identity of what relationships should look like. And so the question that we can ask, like, what is healthy flirting like or is that possible in relationships in general, to me, rests on the assumption that we do a bad job preparing people 
to decide together what their relationship is like. I can certainly imagine psychologically whole partnered relationships that don't involve flirting outside of that pairing. And I can also imagine psychologically healthy and mutually beneficial arrangements that allow flirting and much more outside of two or more people that are in a romantic relational partnership. So um, I think that question kind of shows a gap between where I look at relationships today and kind of how I grew up with relationships. The trick in relationship is to establish trust. And that trust is essential in order to create open communication over time. Being the ability to be honest. So much of the problems we have in relationships are because one or both or more people in a relationship kind of haven't done their work. They haven't done their psychological work to understand their own feelings, their own insecurities, their own needs. We should know our insecurities. And we should be able to name our needs. And we should be able to do that relatively early in a relationship so that we can establish what patterns work. And then we should have the ability to what? Discuss and renegotiate those things over time as what happens. People change. Human beings are really dynamic animals. We are not static. And the notion that you're going to come to some set of conventions for a relationship and then be able to stick to them forever, it just doesn't match my understanding of human development. It's actually pretty unhealthy if people don't change over time. So um, what does healthy flirting look like? It looks like you communicating with the person you're in relationship with and you two existing in um, mutual support of one another's needs and deciding what is and is not appropriate in the confines of that relationship for yourself. You know, last week we talked a lot about uh, sex and drugs on a, an After Dark episode. And one thing I mentioned there that I'll mention again is that when we survey people about relationship satisfaction, gay men, lesbian women, trans people, non-binary people, the further you get away from a cisgendered man and a cisgendered woman in a heterosexual relationship, often the more relationship satisfaction is reported. Why? Not because cisgendered men and women can't be in relationship together, quite the contrary, but because those people don't have as much social scripting and therefore relational confinement and must decide for themselves what's okay and not okay in relationship and who takes on what roles. And so for those of us who are in monogamous, cisgendered, heterosexual relationships, we have a lot to learn there. We men need to learn that we should not be trying to confine our partners into gender roles that are traditionally associated with women and femininity, and women should not be doing that with men. We should be deciding for ourselves what works and what does not work, including on the issue of flirting. Mike, we got a ton of questions regarding the difference between platonic, sexual, and romantic feelings. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So here's a question um, along those lines. 
This person says, my best friend and I have been friends since we met several years ago, and I can't tell the difference between platonic and romantic love sometimes. She says I'm her favorite person, and she's mine too. She has a boyfriend, so I don't know what to do. I might be in love with her? Hmm. Okay. Great question. Let's talk about feelings for a second. Um, there's this idea called... Uh, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy that was originally pioneered um, by Diana Fosha. And then it's been further iterated by uh, Hilary Jacob Hindle, who created something called the Change Triangle. And then uh, Ron Frederick did a lot of work as well uh, in helping to popularize that model. Uh, my dear friend Hilary McBride is the person who told me about AEDP. And I like AEDP not only because it's emotionally focused and trauma-informed, but because it it's centered on an, a well-rounded neurological understanding of the brain. And so AEDP looks at our nervous systems and says, feelings are there to give us information. And then we all have a set of core affects or core feelings or core emotions, which are fear and anger, happiness, sadness, surprise, disgust sexual arousal. I think that might be all of them. I may have missed one. Um, but uh, these kind of feelings give us information about our environment. You notice that love wasn't one of those? Interesting. Um, so we're a social species. And because we're a social species, our Emotions have strong social implications and, and are very responsive to social situations. We can experience fear, for example, or even terror, not just because we're being chased by a tiger, but because we're afraid that something's happening socially to our reputation, to uh, our belonging with people we care for. And so when we talk about love, whether we're talking about platonic love or romantic love or sexual love or all these different terms we use. We're talking about a complex set of emotional interactions designed to help social mammals, what, survive and reproduce. So we understand several things. Number one, AEDP tells us people have really complicated relationships with their feelings. Uh, we get socialized that some feelings are okay and other feelings aren't okay. And then we get complicated reactions to those feelings. A lot of us have very complex uh, responses to our own feelings of sexual arousal, sexual attraction, sexual responsiveness, sexual desire. Um, and then when you bring into that something called attachment theory, which is how we understand that based on people's early life experiences, they engage other people who they're close to. And there's a number of different attachment styles, secure, uh, anxious, uh, avoidant, uh, fearful avoidant. You know, there's all these kind of different attachments. Uh, Attachment styles. So you bring in complicated relationships to our feelings and complicated attachment styles. And then the fact that we want to have what? Friends. And we all want to have friends. And then many of us, even most of us, would like to have a romantic and or sexual partner. And all the time, our nervous systems are trying to help us navigate those kind of core desires and figure out what to do about them. And that's why this is so complicated. We need to have um, the support to learn to navigate our feelings more effectively and understand that 
our nervous systems kind of try to move us towards certain predictable outcomes. So um, number one, the person you spend the most time with tends to be someone you are sexually attracted to. And that's a normal part of a, a primate's nervous system because sexual activity play is not just a procreative activity. It's also a bonding activity. When you look at bonobos, one of the closest uh, relatives of ours in the evolutionary tree of life, bonobos have friendly sex. It's a way that friends bond. And our nervous systems aren't that different. And so when you add the fact that humans kind of add these things called gender identities and sexual orientations on top of what's happening with the biology, uh, we can be confused by our own feelings. And our feelings are never bad. But if you're spending a lot of time with someone, your best friend, and your your kind of sexual orientation, your arousal response allows for this person you spend a lot of time with. Uh, if, if you don't have a blockage towards being attracted to that person, well, of course, it's very likely at some point you're going to feel some kind of a deeper attraction, romantic attraction or sexual attraction. Um, especially with women, we, we are much more open to true intimacy as a society in women's friend relationships than we are with men's. And all this is okay. So what we have to learn and part of growing up is, maturing, is learning to understand our feelings and then figure out like what are the ones we act on, what are the ones we don't act on, what are the ones we kind of feed and allow to develop, and what are the ones we just kind of say, well, that's a, that's a thing that happened, right? Um, it's never satisfying or, or enjoyable um, to be attracted to someone and they're not attracted to in return. Um, and when people set up boundaries, uh, gosh, a lot of men need to learn this. When people say, yes, I'm interested in being your friend. No, I'm not interested in being a romantic partner or your sexual partner, that we need to take ownership of our own feelings and do our work to reframe our relationship with someone else. Um, but the fact that these things are kind of complicated and nuanced, the reason it's hard for us to tell, like, do I have a platonic relationship? Do I have a romantic relationship? Do I have a sexual relationship? What do I desire? What am I looking for at all these intersections? Comes to the fact that our nervous systems are complicated to begin with. And then over time, our relationship to what our nervous systems do have only become more and more complicated because of socialization. So, you know, based on the read of your question, which is very brief and I don't have the background, um, it sounds to me like some good work for you would be to just kind of get more in touch with what's happening with you emotionally. If you're seeing a therapist, have these discussions. Um, I, you didn't indicate what your uh, gender or uh, sexual orientation are. That might be something that you're exploring and trying to discover as well. I encourage you to uh, enjoy that process and not dread it and just be open to what you feel. You know, the first step for many of us is learning to even tell what we're feeling. We grew up with such restrictive family systems and such restrictive social environments that we don't feel safe having our feelings. But after we learn to have our feelings, then we have to learn what feelings we share and don't share and what feelings we act on and don't act on. And this is not a simple clear-cut process because most of us were socialized to use shame as the governing mechanism for what feelings we act on and what feelings we share. And that's a terrible rubric. 
that's just not a helpful, helpful one at all. Um, and so, you know, it, that's all just the process of learning to be human and unlearning the ways that our cultures, especially Western cultures, have um, overcomplicated that experience. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we are going to be answering more questions right after Mike does these ads. Oh, we got to keep the lights on. Okay. Got to keep the go. lights on. It really does take a team to make this show. And uh, you see them now every week. Victory's here. Grace is here. You don't see Tanner behind the scenes. You don't see Amy. You don't see the other people who are involved that you hear at the credits at the end of the show, like Greg. Thank you, Greg, by the way, for making a podcast each and every week. But it takes a team to make the Cozy Robot Show happen. And it happens with your support. So if you join us at CozyRobots.com, uh, you can become a Cozy Robot. Not only support the show, but become a part of our private members-only community. I like to think of it as the good parts of the internet without the bad. Why? Because we share creativity. We socialize together. We have a new book club where we meet a couple times a month to work through fiction and nonfiction spaces. Uh, you know, we talk about difficult things together, but we do so in a supportive way, play video games together. Every week, right after the show, 10, minute, 10 to 15 minutes after the show, we have an after party where Stephanie Tate wins some game that we all play together. That's an inside joke. One week, we even had Taylor Hughes, an incredible performing and professional magician, come and bring us to tears with magic. So if you're not a cozy robot yet, consider joining at any level. And I do mean any level. It really does help us produce this show. You can learn more by going to CozyRobots.com. Our other sponsor this week is BetterHelp. It's been a tough year for mental health, and over 1 million people are taking charge of their mental health with the easiest, most convenient way to get mental health support. BetterHelp works with licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleep issues. I've had a few of those myself, trauma, anger, family conflicts. LGBTQIA matters, grief, and self-esteem, and it is perfectly adapted for this era of social distancing and safer practices in COVID-19 because you communicate with your counselor via text, chat, call, video, whatever you prefer on the schedule that works for you. And now if you're in an area that's more opened up, let me tell you. It's still wonderful to use BetterHelp because you don't have to worry about finding a parking space and you don't even have to worry about finding a therapist because BetterHelp will find a licensed expert for you. When you go to betterhelp.com slash cozy robots, you're gonna fill out a questionnaire and they will connect you with a therapist you're going to love. And if for any reason it's not a fit, they'll find you a new therapist for no additional cost. I use BetterHelp every day, and you can join me. And you'll also get 10% off your first month service by going to betterhelp.com slash cozy robots. Well, apparently, Restream, the platform, knows we got to pay the bills because it will certainly pay the transitions for the ads every week. <laughs> you come back, Grace. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just think it's funny that like nothing worked until it's time to do ads. And then, like, well, we've got priorities. So they can't pay us unless they get paid. So pay that beautiful ad footage. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed.
Um, would you like me to ask a question or? Um, I'm just here hanging out. Whatever okay. <laughs> Sorry. This is a goofy episode. Thank you for hanging in there, everybody. Although lots of great information. Um, okay. Brandon in the comments asks, uh, Mike, you are married longer than I have been. How have you gotten it to last so long while not being neurotypical? I'm suspected by my therapist to have autism Ooh. and I struggle in relationships. Brandon, gosh, I feel you, buddy. Um, it's really sad when you look at the statistics. Um, people on the spectrum are less likely to be in relationships, and they are less likely to get married. Um, because we uh, often don't read social cues the same way that other people do, you know? Um, we often don't present social cues the other way that people do, and we can be very rewarding and very frustrating partners in relationship, and we are both of those things. Uh, for 20 years, I have been unshakably loyal to my wife. Uh, I, d I literally don't even understand um, relationship infidelity. We're monogamous by choice, and... Um, you know, it'd be like it'd be like uh, choosing not to breathe or, or choosing to <laughs> not live on the planet. Like I literally don't understand how things like that happen because you know the my relationship with Jenny is so foundational to my ability to function as a person. And um, to twenty years, have we made it work? We're really patient and understanding of each other. Uh, we work to create trust and open communication. We try to create love and support. And um, frankly, Jenny's really patient. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which I almost need a caretaker as much as a partner. There are, there are normal things that are part of life and living that I as a disabled person struggle with or simply can't do. And um, I'm, I feel fortunate Jenny uh, doesn't mind helping me in those ways that I have deficiencies. Um, but she's got her own challenges, and we've been really lucky that our own weaknesses and deficiencies don't overlap a lot, and we can uh, support each other in areas where we each struggle. Um, I try to do my work. Uh, there's a lot of things I don't understand. I try to trust that when Jenny describes her feelings, her experiences, she's telling the truth about them, and I don't have to understand. I just have to believe that what she's saying about herself is true. And she does the same for me. Um, I've always been odd since I was a very small child. And uh, whatever oddness I possessed was apparent when we were dating. And Jenny was more than okay with it. She liked me for who I was. And so I think the trick is to look for someone like that. And this, I don't think it's just for people on the spectrum or might be on the spectrum. Um, I think anytime you're dating, um, you want to invest deeply in a relationship with that person who likes you as you are with all of your rough edges. 
all of your eccentricity. And the more that we perform when dating, I think the more of a disservice we do. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that means we should show up the first time we meet someone with a t-shirt covered in tomato sauce and uh, unkempt hair. That's not what I'm saying. They're, what I'm saying is be the truest, best presented version of yourself in dating. And then as you date, continue to take the risk of being honest and being sincere and being genuine. And if the person you are kind of dating or talking to seems to like the real you, there's something there. And if they don't, there's no hard feelings. Maybe you're just not meant to be together. That's okay. For those of us on the spectrum, part of that is learning to stop masking so much. You know, one thing I wish, if I could go back in time, I used to be able to mask a lot more before I got a little bit older and had some cognitive decline and I had a brain injury that accelerated that cognitive decline. Um, I was able to adapt to situations that I can no longer adapt to. And if I had to do it over again, I would have spoken up more when situations were challenging for me. I would have, I would have told a more honest version of myself instead of trying to perform in a certain way, kind of just to impress this girl who I like so much. Um, and I think Jenny and I still would have ended up together. And I also think... We wouldn't have had to go through a thing where it was like, hey, how come you don't ever like to go to social events with other people literally ever? Because when we were dating, that seemed easy for you. And it was like, of course, it seemed easy. I was trying to get you to like me and I would go home and collapse afterwards. So uh, that's what I mean by being the true version of ourselves. We want to be as honest and sincere and open as we can, as quickly as we can, and let things work out from there. And I would say, I, Jenny... Um, would speak to this. Um, I don't want to tell on anybody else on the team or share personal information, so I won't. But I know a number of people uh, who are in relationships with people on the spectrum who find those relationships to be immensely rewarding and satisfying. And um, that's because they know what they're getting into. And I think that's true, whether you have autism ADHD, some of their neurodivergence, whether you have some kind of disability, the more people know what they're getting into with you, the more equipped your relationship is to stand the test of time. But what do I know? I've only been married 20 years. Mike, someone wrote in and said, I married within purity culture. Now I'm mm. not sure if I'm with the right person, but we have a child together. I resent the choices I made because of purity culture, i.e. deciding not to date before marriage, not kissing before getting engaged. I just know that my partner and I are very different people. And I've mm -hmm. told this to my partner, but they want to stay in the relationship because of our child. I love him as a best friend, but I don't know what to do. Keep getting to know yourself. That's what you do. Keep getting to know yourself. If you went through purity culture and the steps you're describing, then you probably have some pretty significant dysfunction um, and or, or maladaptive strategies or, or old tools that aren't suiting. Don't, don't fixate on this clinical language. I use it to avoid saying things like unhealthy, which are typically untrue. What I'm saying is there is 
some complexity in your relationship with sex and sexuality. That is very common to people of all gender identities who grew up in purity culture because the entire sexual ethic was based on shame. And in purity culture, there's this story told that if you wait until marriage, and that's God's plan, everything is marital bliss. Marital bliss. Maritable? No. Marital bliss. Uh, so that when you finally do have sex in the confines of marriage, it's wonderful and perfect. And then somehow a boy and a girl who were taught shame-based strategies about sexual relationships, who have no sexual experience, try to have sex with each other, and it doesn't go well <laughs> because people don't know how their bodies work alone, much less how their bodies work together. And then you add that, the like really restrictive understandings of relationships people have. There's such a terror around sex and sexuality that it infects friendship. So men raised in purity culture are, are given these really restrictive views of masculinity. They're also told to be extremely cautious of friend relationships with women. Uh, so their only models to emulate in friendship are other men's in really, men in restrictive performances of masculinity. Women are taught the same. There's stuff like the Billy Graham rule where a, men, a man shouldn't be alone with a woman that's not his spouse at any time. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It really undermines the agency we have as people, the control we really do have over our actions. My friend Emily Joy Allison just wrote a book called Hashtag Church 2 that is about how purity culture leads to sexual abuse and rape. Why? Because when you tell a story that... We don't have control over our bodies. Well, of course, then men behave as if they don't. None of this is okay. So any of us who grew up in purity culture, we basically have a lot of makeup work to do, right? So we didn't get a healthy or adaptive depiction of relationships or sexuality or marriage growing up. So we got to do a bunch of homework. We're like... Uh, well, we're like homeschoolers who suddenly show up at college without a well-rounded liberal arts education, aren't we? Right? Only we're like, we have about life and relationships. So you've got some discovery work. What's that discovery work? What do you want? What do you need? Do you know what your needs are in relationship, in friendship, in romance, in sex? Do you know what you want? Do you know what your goals are? Well, you got to start there. And as you do that, because you are married to someone and you are co-parenting with them right now in a marriage, there should be an ongoing channel of communication about your mutual rediscovery of who you each are, and then a discussion of what could work moving forward. But for that to work, everybody involved has got to move away from the enmeshment we find with codependency. And towards true intimacy. True intimacy happens when we learn who we are in here. And we can tell someone what we, what we need, what our boundaries are. When we get out of cycles of conflict that are about managing our reputation and our self-worth and actually about communicating and moving towards some kind of consensus. To do that, there might be a lot of shame you have to work through about what you want and what you need and about your sexuality.
That's hard work. I hope you have access to a therapist or a mental health professional, or at the very least, an open-minded peer support group with good, good practices around mental health and boundaries. But there's a lot of work to do before you could ever decide whether you want to be in a marriage or not. First, you got to figure out who you are and who you want to be. Hey, Grace. Hey. Brendan, so Brendan in the comments said, with modern technology, long distance relationships have become much more popular and feasible. But in my experience, being physically distant presents many challenges. Any tips for long distance? Remember the thing I said a little earlier in the program. Our nervous systems tend to be attracted to and tend to create bonding with whoever we spend the most time with. That's pretty universally true. Not totally, but very close. There are some neurodivergents that could undermine that notion. But for most people, who you're with the most is who you feel the closest to, right? There's some other factors in there if you're with someone a lot, but the, the, the experience of being with them is frustrating or triggering, then that can undermine that. But assuming things go basically well, the people you spend the most time with are the people you're most attracted to. So um, I've just tried to make sure that for 20 years, the person I spend the most time with is Jenny, my wife. And I don't know how well it would work if we had a long-distance relationship because part of, um, for both of us, nearness involves the quality of of near physical interaction. And I don't don't necessarily mean the huggy-kissy stuff. I just mean like being in the same room, holding hands, uh, conversation while doing other things. Um, Those things really help. So this is... But then some people talk about having long-distance relationships and loving it. It works really well. And that's because we're all individuals. So getting to know your own wants and your needs. I feel like a broken record tonight, but I think it's so important for relationships. The only way you know what works for you is to pay attention to your needs and pay attention to your feelings and pay attention to the cycles that happen in your relationships. If you are trying a long-distance relationship and it's just not working for you, I hope you can name why and then you and your relationship partner can try other strategies to see if that works. And because we are so afraid of... We feel shame about the end of relationships. I actually think relationships should be able to run their course without any shame involved. And if a long-distance relationship isn't working for both people involved, it should be perfectly fine to amicably dissolve it as friends. Um, And if it's working, to keep doing it. Um, So I I don't think there's a universal answer about whether long-distance relationships work or not. I think they're very wise right now in the COVID era, but hopefully at some point that's going to be over. And um, and in general, most people's nervous systems creates bonding feelings and often sexual feelings for the person that we spend the most time with who is of a gender presentation to which we are attracted. And um, that very obvious facet of human biology is often ignored 
to people's peril. So like I will say, I have lots of close friendships with women who are not my wife. Lots and lots and lots of close relationships. And um, it's pretty easy for you to navigate because I spend less time with those women than I spent. Maybe there's like the Billy Graham rule is horseshit, but maybe we could do the like uh, social primate bonding rule, like spend the most time with the one you want to be with and your nervous system will probably take care of the rest for you, even if it's over a long distance. That's called sticking the landing, Grace. I always try to think of a way to land the question where it began, no matter where I went in the middle. Perfect. <laughs> it went perfectly. Um, Mike, what's going on in our brains during a breakup? Oh, man, the worst stuff. Breakups are so hard. Here we are, a social species. Wow. What does that mean? It means we equate belonging with survival. It means like dogs, we can experience a particular type of anxiety, which is separation anxiety. When we're away from people we feel bonded to, our nervous systems create an anxiety. And a breakup is an anxiety a separation anxiety that's not going to be resolved. And so that moves into the grief process and grieving. And grief is beautiful in its capacity to help us heal, but very painful. And grief causes a lot of suffering as we go through it. And including, you know, people, um, you can feel actual pain in and around your chest, the kind of heartbreak and heart ache we talk about, you can actually see tissue inflammation around the cardiac region and the nerves there. Uh, you can experience intestinal discomfort because you've got nerves and neurons all through your body. And the waves of feeling you go through in grief, they make you feel bad. Everywhere. People can have flu-like symptoms. So for social animals, the loss of relationship is hard, even if it was mutual and amicable. Separating, separation anxiety is hard. Um, and it is, it is brain-based from us being social primates. Um, and there's no shortcut to it. We should give ourselves the space to grieve when we break up. We should allow, we shouldn't try to numb out those difficult feelings. And we want to be careful to not fall into them to the point that it impairs our daily living. So when we've broken up with someone, um, even if it's a long-term relationship, even if it's a marriage, you do want to allow the feelings to be processed and you still want to engage with other people socially. You still want to maintain some basic standards of nutrition and some basic standards of daily exercise. Those things actually help your body process all of these difficult things. Uh, the pain centers of your brain, for example, actually activate in conjunction with separation anxiety. You feel in pain. And uh, maintaining some of your regular routine is good and helps you move through it. But trying to constantly, compulsively routine your way out of it is not. It's kind of splitting the difference, giving space for the feeling uh, while still continuing to do things that support your overall body-brain health. To end tonight's show, Mike... Someone is wondering, how do you find love during a pandemic? <laughs> I have no idea. 
I mean, this stuff is hard. It's really hard. Um, it's not safe to date right now. Wherever you are, it's not safe to date. Or I guess if you were to eat outdoors, <clears throat> um, six feet apart, really 10 feet, <laughs> then, then yeah, that's safe. But that's not a really good way to get to know somebody. Uh, if you wanted to be, you know, six feet apart, put a mask on. I don't know that six feet apart wearing a mask is <clears throat> super conducive to the the experience by which social primates bond. Um, I'll be honest. You know, the people I've been the most concerned for as a group in this pandemic have been single people, especially single people living alone. Um, it's really hard on children, especially uh, elementary and middle schoolers who are having such critical development years. They need to be around their peers to be whole and healthy. Um, so that's a group I'm concerned about a lot as well. But but single people in general um, are, are really dependent on a, lack, a lot of activity outside their home um, to be adaptive psychologically, to be in a healthy place psychologically. The pandemic has been hard on me, but not that hard. I'm with Jenny, who I love and is, is you know, my main main source of companionship. And then, you know, I've got a good relationship with my daughters um, and they have each other, right? They have peers in the form of their sibling. But for single people, this is so hard. I would say be as engaged as possible in whatever online social gatherings you can be a part of. Try to stay involved with people. Uh, I have actually encouraged, if you're not in the purple category, the extreme danger setting in your county, that it is okay to have uh, two other households that you mix with um, just for your mental health. And um, here's the hard stuff, y'all. How do you find love during a pandemic? How do you graduate high school during a pandemic? How do you have a birthday during a pandemic? How do you find a job during a pandemic? How do you whatever during a pandemic? The answer is like, you really don't. All we're doing right now is trying to get as many bodies from January 2020 to whenever this thing is over alive. And the personalities and minds in those bodies we want to get them to the other side in as much health as we can. But we are just in a an all-out battle against a virus. And so a lot of things that we value and a lot of things that are important to us and a lot of things that make us feel good and even make us feel sane, we'll just have to pick back up on the other side. And listen to me. It's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard because what we all have right now is a lot of grief locked in our chest and it won't come out, not because we have bad mental health tools, but because you cannot fully grieve a traumatic event that is still happening. So even after the pandemic, when we start to think about graduations and birthday parties, and speaking events and finding love, 
we'll also have a season where we're just putting ourselves back together and healing. And we'll all have to be really patient with each other and really supportive of each other. Um, because we are living through one of the most difficult moments in history for anyone living. So people who have found love during the pandemic, good for you. But for anyone who's finding that hard or overwhelming or impossible, remember, we are all just doing our best to survive. Deep breath. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. It's a good question. I'm grateful for it. That brings us to the end of the questions, actually. The end of the questions and the end of the show. Yep, we did it. All right. Well, I think I will uh, tell everybody who made the show. What do you think? Sounds good. Let's All right. hear it. The Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot. I'll see you at the after party in just a few minutes. Our show's producers, our Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Mordain. Our music was written and recorded by Madison and Macy McCarg. Production support by Amy Hill. That's a fun name to read this week. What? Social media manager, Grace Vaughn. Design, Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design, Landon Satterfield. Set design, Jesse Lane. Interiors, wardrobe stylist, and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thank you all for joining us, and we can't wait to see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. See you next week. Cozy.